702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith is with us and taking all of your science-related questions. Give us a call, 11 in the WhatsApp line, 072-702-1702. Doctor, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Bit of a late night last night. I was out on the razzle. How are you? What does out on the razzle mean? Does that is that the same as... <laughs> we were just having a conversation about me saying backsplash and people saying no, backsplash is American and you're supposed to say splash back. Um, so Ooh. please translate out on the razzle. I imagine there was a disco ball and some dancing. Well, I was actually just giving a lecture as well for a whole bunch of Chinese medical students who've come to Cambridge from their province in China for a a medicine course. And I asked them if they had jet lag. And I could tell that they didn't understand because they all looked blank. And when I said, who's tired and sleepy? They all then nodded because they've been for 15 hours on an airplane. And so I had to translate what jet lag was. And I told them I'd been out on the razzle and they looked even more (laughs) confused. the, what, 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 what actually I did, I went to a concert last night. Um, I, I've been a huge fan all my life of John Anderson and, yes, the progressive rock band. And uh, so John Anderson was playing in London. And so I booked tickets and took my family along and we went to see him play. And he had a whole bunch of um, young people. So it's the school of rock where they bring teenagers oh, who wow. are budding and up-and-coming musicians. So... He was performing, but he was supported by and his band comprised some people early teens who were playing guitars bigger than they were. But mostly they were brilliant and we had a lovely time, but it was a very, very late night. And yes, there was a lot of dancing and singing. So if I sound a bit hoarse, that's the other reason. I am just adding this to my vocabulary and I'm going to start coming on in saying, guys, this weekend I was out on the rest. <laughs> I yeah, I want to hear you play it. I want, I want to, I'm going to audit this, but I want to hear it next, next week's show. We want to hear what you've done to be out on the razzle. I just absolutely love that term. I don't know why, but it sounds fantastic. All right, let us jump into the questions. 011-3030702 on the WhatsApp line 0727021702. There is a question that says, um, this is from Tools. I believe intestinal cells turn over every three to five days. If you have gut issues, can one use fasting and autophagy, you'll have to help me with that one, to overhaul your old ones and kitted with fresh ones? Uh, Tools is quite right in the sense that the cells that lie in our gastrointestinal tract do grow incredibly fast, but it's even faster than three to five days. When we eat food, some of it goes through us like a scouring pad because it's full of fiber and other rigid stuff. And it scrapes the lining off everything from your tongue right through to the bottom end. And so you are endowed with a very fast growing lining to your GI tract so that you can repair damage and also replace the cells that get scoured off by food and and acid and digestive juices all the time. This is actually the best defense we have against intestinal problems. And when we have a viral infection, like a a dose of GI or gastroenteritis, then you you end up with lots of cells being killed in your intestinal tract, but you grow them back incredibly quickly. And when we have bowel problems, then we do give people a period of gastric rest where you sometimes you, you stop people eating altogether, but sometimes you just put them on very basic foodstuffs 
this reduces inflammation if people have inflammatory problems mm. and the lining of the GI tract can then grow itself back and recover itself. That's certainly true uh, and, it, and it's our best defense against injury. Whether or not you can use it in all circumstances, well, the answer is there's no, you can never say always in medicine. There will always be exceptions to that. But certainly we do use this as a strategy for certain inflammatory diseases of the intestine where we take away the inflammatory stimulus and then, and then rely on the fact that the bowel does grow itself back and, and heal itself very rapidly to put back uh, new lining. And then we can work on why the person had the problem in the first place and how to stop it coming back. Mm. All right. Um, thank you so much uh, for that question, Tools. Very interesting. Let's go to McDonald from Yeovil. Hi, McDonald. I'm greeting you, Lebo. Lebo, I've got a question. My daughter, you know, like when someone is growing a teeth, like a young, young, young child, mm. so she got the milk teeth. Now the teeth were shaking the front one. The down one. So, um, so could you just repeat that were, again? You said she got her milk teeth, and then the teeth were like you, you know, like by the time you want to take out the teeth from the baby, so the teeth are shaking. So okay, the, the as in they're getting ready to teeth. fall out. Yeah. So mm. the child didn't say that my teeth are shaking. Mm. We realized that she got the other two teeth coming in. Mm. So I, I went to the doctor. I managed to take out the front one by force. Mm. Then I went to the doctor. The doctor said, we have to take out the side-by-side side teeth again so that the, the one that they are inside... Oh, we, we lost the case. But I think the, 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 the main question he wanted to ask um, Dr. Chris was to say that the two front the front teeth came out, but now the teeth are not coming back, as in the milk teeth are gone and um, the, the, the actual teeth have not come out and maybe in in your response you can um, help us understand if we should be forcing teeth out or allowing them to come out on their own as in the milk teeth hello mcdonald the way in which we lose our teeth our milk teeth are known as our deciduous teeth because they've evolved to fall out you have very small teeth and fewer of them because your jaw is smaller and you wouldn't be able to fit a repertoire of adult teeth in. So we make smaller, softer, less hard, less hard wearing teeth for smaller jaws and then we throw them away as we get bigger. And we do that by the secondary dentition, your adult teeth coming through underneath your milk teeth and they erode the root of the milk teeth as they grow up towards the margin of the gum with the outside world so that eventually there's very little hanging onto the tooth so it falls out naturally. Everyone's been there. We've all done it where we incessantly wiggle the tooth with our tongue until it drives us to distraction and eventually it just falls off. Or some people go to extremes and do tie them to door handles and slam the door and things. But generally, you can rely on the tooth coming through underneath to erode the root and then drive out the milk tooth so the secondary dentition can come through. Sometimes, though, dentists will elect to remove teeth in advance and this is to make some space so that when the secondary teeth do come through they don't feel forces that push them in the wrong direction and crowd things up and my own dentist when I was about 13 or 14 said well you're uh, slightly slow losing your teeth and uh, what I can do is to remove some of them from 
further back and this will create space and as they come through then they'll come through in a nice straight line and he was absolutely right but the downside is I did look a bit like a human equivalent of Bugs Bunny for a while and uh, it wasn't a good look <laughs> yeah I think uh, all of us went through that luckily we, we didn't care that much about how we looked when we were that young it gets awkward when we are older let's go to Rorisang in Ridipoet hi Rorisang hi yes go ahead um, I have a question. So what happens to the water in the geyser when the power goes out? I mean, the water goes out. What happens to the water in the geyser? As in, if no water is pumping into the geyser? Yes, but there was water previously in the geyser, but there's no more water pumping in. Oh, girl, you know you're asking a question that I asked about, uh, I think it was last week, when I was saying, why when I didn't have water when the pipes were frozen outside, did the water in the geyser not come out? Is that is that what happened to you? Yes. Okay, okay. And somebody did answer me, but doctor, I know you're going to have a significantly smarter way than... I would have to <laughs> to explain why. <laughs> this is more a plumbing question, isn't it? But I can explain it. The way this works is that the hot water tank or the, the geyser, the way it works is you have a supply from the mains that come into the bottom of the tank and you have hot water collecting at the top of the tank where there's another pipe comes off and that goes to your tap or your shower or your bath. So as you open the tap, the cold water coming in at the bottom pushes the hot water out at the top. So the tank is always full. It never empties. It's always full of water. And this is important because the way it works to heat the water up is that there is either an electrical element in there or there is a pipe running round inside, which has got the hot water from a boiler in it. Either way, you're transferring heat into the water that's in the water tank, the geyser. It's always full of water. So if there is a supply problem, the mains is off, either because someone's closed the stopcock or, as you mentioned, it's frozen, which can happen sometimes, then there's nothing to push the water out of the top of the tank, even if it's hot, so it won't move. So the water can be nice and warm, but you can turn the taps on all you like, but there's no pressure difference and the water moves because of a high pressure in the supply line and a low pressure when you open the tap, which pushes the water through. That won't happen if the supply isn't active. This is why you're the expert that I'm not, because I was going to say it's a smart geezer that just prevents your geezer from burning and running out of water. <laughs> that's, that's what one of the callers told me, which I think is, 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 is such a great tool to have. But Rory Sang, thank you for the question. Let's go to Terence from Centurion. Hi, Terence. Hi, Mm, Go ahead. Um, I've, got, I've got a question for a doctor. Mm. Uh, does the stem cell assist with when you've got a problem with disc degeneration? Does the stem cell assist with disc degeneration? degeneration. So that obviously yes, is in, you... in the spine. Yes, doctor? The discs we have separate each of the bones in our spinal column, the vertebral column, and they are squidgy like shock absorbers. They have a fibrous, tough outer and a squidgy interior called the substantia gelatinosa. And force transferred vertically up and down the spine causes the discs to bulge out a bit and then squidge back in. And in that way, they dissipate force, shock, absorbing shocks up and down your spine. As we get older, 
the material becomes more rigid and more fixed and less spongy, and therefore they're less good at doing that. It also tends to shrink, so we lose some height. And this can also affect the way that the bones are loaded on each other. Now, sometimes the discs can degenerate to the extent that they bulge or herniate. And this is where the the soft interior bulges out through the fibrous ring around the outside, and it starts to go where it shouldn't. And this can include into the canals that allow nerve fibers to come out of the spinal cord, and it means you can get pressure on those nerves, and this can cause numbness, pain, and weakness in the part of the body that that nerve normally supplies. And the most common manifestation of that is a condition called sciatica, which affects the sciatic nerve, which runs down the back of your leg and supplies your foot and the lower part of the limb. So unsurprisingly, if you squeeze on this nerve, you can have a weak foot, you can have changes to the uh, sensation in your lower limb, and uh, this can also include pain. And it's often postural, so in certain positions which make the disc bulge more, it can be worse. So under certain circumstances, people do undergo surgery to fix this, and sometimes you have to remove a disc. The problem with removing a disc is it can limit movement, and all operations are not without risk. So people are looking at whether there are ways to replace the discs or cause them to regenerate themselves. And this is where the idea of stem cells comes in. There are now implants that people are beginning to work on, which are effectively a support scaffold for material that can be colonized by stem cells that will then grow new cartilage and new material to make a new disc. So at the moment, there's various ways people are doing this. Uh, they are definitely being used, and uh, they definitely show promise, but they're not in wide-scale use everywhere. So you, you wouldn't necessarily go for this as your first resort, but there are certainly very good uh, disc replacements, and people, including researchers at Cambridge University who I've spoken to recently, are looking at uh, using stem cells to grow new discs and new disc materials that could go into the slots between the bones. Thank you so, so much uh, for that question. I hope that you are assisted. Let's go to Patrick from Johannesburg. Hi, Patrick. Hey, guys. Mm. My seven-year-old daughter asked me a question. I'm usually pretty good at answering them. Oh, you, you, if you're calling the good doctor, you failed her. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even come up with the, the clever answer. You said, um... <laughs> She had told you about fainting, and then she said, Dad, can you faint when you're sleeping? And oh. I said, uh, actually, don't know. Wait, did you say I'm, faint? I'm pretty sure if you have a faint, yeah. If you, oh, wow. If you maybe like in, mm. in deep sleep, and then yeah. you have a fright in your dream, like, can you actually faint? And, and how would you know? Oh, yeah, I, I also wouldn't have an answer for that one because in my <laughs> mind you are fainted because you are sleeping. <laughs> Doctor, help us with this one. Can you faint while you are sleeping? When we faint, what's actually happening? Well, the answer is that normally people who faint are people who are standing up for long periods of time and what has occurred is that blood is pooling in their dependent tissues, normally the legs and because there's blood collecting there and not coming up to the heart, there's not enough blood being pumped back out of the heart to maintain steady state, adequate perfusion or supply to the brain. So what happens is a person feels giddy and dizzy and may lose consciousness, often they do, and this causes them to slump to the floor. 
And as soon as they slump to the floor, because now your heart and therefore your brain and your legs are all flat in one line, there's nowhere under gravity for blood to pull in the lower limbs anymore. So the so-called venous return, the amount of blood coming back up the legs and into the heart goes up dramatically. This means you increase your cardiac output, the amount of blood the heart's pumping, and therefore your mean arterial pressure zooms up again. This restores circulation to the brain and you've solved the problem of underperfusion. Now, when you're in bed at night, unless you're sleeping like an astronaut, pointing up, up and down or you know, floating around, you're going to be lying recumbent most probably. So therefore, you've already fainted in order to be in bed asleep. So in that respect, your oh, blood pressure right. is as good as you're going to be when you're asleep. Okay, I absolutely love that. I just love the questions that come um, from children. They really get you to think. We've got Tim in Kempton Park. Hi, Tim. Hi, good afternoon, Hi, yes. doctor. I just want to find out from the doctor, what is flu arthritis and uh, how does one get it? What is flu arthritis and how does one get it? Thank you, Tim. I've never heard of the term flu arthritis, but what could be being referred to here is that, well, a couple of things. One is that when we get an acute infection, very often a viral illness like the flu, the first knockings that a person feels unwell, they won't necessarily have a runny nose and a cough. They will have a fever and they'll have muscle aches and pains and stiff joints all over their body. And this is arthralgia and you'll also get myalgia. So joint pain and muscle pain. And this often a day or so you get something nasty like the flu. And people had COVID said they also got aching joints and muscles. This is despite the fact that these respiratory infections like the flu are confined, unless things have gone very badly wrong, to your usually nose and throat and sometimes your lungs, but they have whole body or systemic effects. And the reason they're affecting your whole body is because the virus, even though it's just in the respiratory tract, is winding up and activating your immune system which is sending signals like danger alert signals all around your body and putting all of your tissues on an inflammatory high alert. And this is to put the cells in those tissues into a state that's harder for them to infect with viruses and easier for them to recruit the immune system's help when they need it. The side effect of that happening is that it does activate the pain system in those areas. So you do, because of that low grade inflammation and those inflammatory signals, feel achy and also feel very, very tired. There's one other possibility here, which is that some infections cause what we call a post-infectious or reactive arthritis. And there's one particular virus called parvovirus B19, which women who've been pregnant will probably be familiar with because sometimes they test for it because it can cause problems in pregnancy. But pretty much any virus can do this. But parvovirus B19 and also rubella, another virus that's a big problem, German measles, big problem in pregnancy, can do this. You can get the immune system wound up by the viral infection. And in the aftermath, it can cause stiffness and pain in joints because of the immune response to the virus but you can then get some knock-on inflammatory changes in the joints themselves, which causes stiffness and pain for days to weeks after the infection. But luckily, most people just resolve spontaneously. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so, so much. I hope